Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 77, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 11. Ezra. Return and rebuild. Returning and rebuilding. That's the theme for this episode. And while it revolves around the person of Ezra as well, I just want you to keep you know, this concept in mind, this concept of returning and rebuilding as we talk about Ezra and all the things that are periphery to Ezra. Return and rebuild. And not just in a physical way. Now, some of this is physical, of course, of the temple, yada, yada, yada. But just think of return and rebuild in a broader spiritual context as we go through all of this. Return and rebuild in Judaism in Christianity, and in Islam. It's the same idea. However, before we do any of that, I don't want to just assume that everyone is familiar with the biblical character of Ezra. It's not a name you often hear um, you know, at church, Sunday school, whatever. You know, and, and in modern times, I've never actually met anyone named Ezra. You know, I just haven't. Maybe you have. It's a, It could just be a strange regional thing for me, but uh, I've just never heard the name outside of uh, alternative music. You know, but Ezra is important. Biblically, obviously, he's very important, but he's also important as an Islamic character. So before we just kind of dive into the Islamic version of Ezra and all that comes with that, here's the short version of Ezra's story from the Bible. And its importance. So here, um, this is the biblical account. Ezra. And this is me talking at first. This is not the Bible. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. And he was basically the head holy guy. When Cyrus, the Persian king, decided it's time for the Jews to go back home. And not only would the Jews go home, but they would be allowed to rebuild the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. And not only that, Cyrus was actually going to pay for it. So here's that from the book of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to send a proclamation throughout his kingdom and to put it in writing as follows. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord... The God of heaven, who has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, has appointed me to build a house for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And it would be Ezra who would end up overseeing all of this, so to speak. He was overseeing the rebuilding of the temple, and similarly, he was rebuilding the old religion among his people who had largely forgotten much of the temple-focused Judaism. And like the temple, this reclaiming of the culture would be a gradual process. You know, the two would grow together over the coming centuries, because the temple would not really be that spectacular until the time of Herod, hundreds of years later, and the religion would gradually get better and better in parallel at the time of Herod's temple, because that was actually the golden age of rabbis and towering intellects and wise men, people like Hillel, for example. 
Now, from the Christian perspective, Jesus would be the culmination of this. Building the ultimate temple and sealing God's ultimate covenant with all people. Return and rebuild. Ezra did it. Jesus did it. And really, Muhammad did it as well, just in a different place. Because Muhammad returned to Mecca, and from his perspective, he restored the Kaaba to its rightful place, just dedicating it to the God of Abraham. So that's the kind of thing Ezra is often associated with. And I should mention that Ezra is also um, the person who wrote First and Second Chronicles, which makes him, traditionally speaking at least, the second greatest writer by volume in the Bible, behind Moses. So despite being mostly forgotten by so many, Ezra is a larger figure than people tend to realize. But in Islam, Ezra is not exactly that kind of a towering figure. And really, honestly, he's barely a figure at all. But he is mentioned in the Quran twice. Maybe twice. Because as is the case with some other Old Testament figures we've gone over, he isn't explicitly named in the Quran. But many think that the person being referenced is Ezra. And, you know, in these two instances, there, there's a one maybe, and there's an almost definitely. So let's do the almost definitely. Now, that's from Surah 9, verse 30. And uh, the maybe is Surah 2, verse 259. And yes, Surah 2, the Surah of the Cow, it really is that long. It goes to 259 and past. Uh, that's why it's in the front. But we'll get back to Surah 2 in a minute. In a minute. A little, uh, several minutes. Because that one is a bit more cryptic regarding the person of Ezra. Or should I say, Uzair. You know, that is the name used in Surah 9, verse 30. So uh, here's 930. The Jews say Ezra is the son of Allah, while the Christians say the Messiah is the son of Allah. Such are their baseless assertions, only parroting the words of earlier disbelievers. May Allah condemn them. How can they be deluded from the truth? So you see another shot there at Jews and Christians. Although in the many passages like this in the Quran, well, not really that many, a few dozen, you know, I really think that what Muhammad meant with the word son wasn't exactly the same as what Christians in, say, Byzantium would have called son. And that's a theme you'll see in my Quranic episodes, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole here. The Arabic here is Ibn Allah, literally son of God. Very simple language. But this is about Ezra. So why is Ezra mentioned here alongside Jesus? You know, well, not Jesus. It says the Messiah. No proper name is given. Ezra is the son of Allah? That might be news to you, uh, to most all of you. So uh, definitely news to pretty much anybody worshiping in any kind of a official Jewish institution. Um, so... Who are these phantom Jews that seem to have raised Ezra to this level? You know, who is it that thinks Ezra is the son of God? Like Again, I, I've never heard it. 100% of the Jews in the world would be just baffled by that assertion. 
However, that all depends on what is meant by son of God. In the Bible, you know, in Hebrew, the Bible often uses the term son of God to refer to a godly person. And I think you could say, without blasphemy, that God is the father of Israel or the father of the Jews. You could say the same thing about Ezra or Moses. Because really, it all just depends what you mean by that. In America, George Washington is often called the father of our country. Does that mean we think he's some divine character that miraculously fathered 330, 350, whatever it is, 350 million of all of us? It, no, that's dumb. No one thinks that. Almost none of us are even distantly related to George Washington. I'm certainly not. That's just one example of how it's ridiculous to take words literally, regardless of context, literally, even when God is not involved. And in this case, when God is involved, uh, a much, much larger caution is advised in interpreting the text. Now, it's certainly possible that, you know, this group of Jews eventually, and particularly the ones in Medina, had come to consider Ezra, for some reason, as the son of God. Now, what they meant by that can certainly be disputed, because words seldom mean the exact same thing once they are filtered through a language or two, and then a thousand years, and especially when interpreted by hostile ears. Now, it's certainly possible that this group of Jews actually thought Ezra was the divine offspring of God. You know, Arabia was a place of wild religious assertions and spectacular heresies. These were not often conventional Jews and Christians. And there is a huge, huge probability, though, the most likely probability, that this was just a theological misunderstanding. But if someone did, indeed, believe that any prophet was the offspring of God, here the Quran is correcting that. You know, in this case, it's talking about Ezra. And that's the story of how Ezra gets his only explicit mention in the Quran. So the good news for him is that he made it into the Quran. But the bad news is that he's also being demoted, so to speak in that same passage. This passage is usually traced back to a, a dispute in Medina, which was in 624, so two years after the Hijra, when gaps between the Muslims and the Jews were starting to become wider and wider and wider. Now, that isn't a terribly interesting passage regarding Ezra, admittedly, although it certainly can spark plenty of theological discussions. Again, it just kind of gives you a snapshot of the area and maybe what everyone was thinking in 624. So historically, it's interesting. Um, but the other mention uh, for literary reasons uh, is far more interesting. That is, if it actually does refer to Ezra. So he's maybe a character in this story. And yes, it actually is a story just kind of wrapped up into one verse. So um, here is that story. This is Surah 2, 
259. Or are you not aware of the one who passed by a city which was in ruins? And he wondered, how could Allah bring this back to life after its destruction? So Allah caused him to die for 100 years and then brought him back to life. Allah asked, how long have you remained in this state? He replied, perhaps a day or part of a day. Allah said, no, you have remained here for 100 years. Just look at your food and drink. They have not spoiled. But now look at the remains of your donkey. And so we have made you into a sign for humanity. And look at the bones of the donkey, how we bring them together and then clothe them with flesh. When this was made clear to him, he declared, Now I know that Allah is most capable of everything. Uh, to help you out, I tried to read the clearest version of that story, but still, it's not a clear story, you know, uh, particularly to listen to. So you may want to just read that if you can, and, and really read it a few times. So let me give you a possibly clearer version here. Basically, a man goes past a ruined city, and he wonders if God could bring the city back to life. So God kills that man and leaves him dead for 100 years. And then he brings him back to life, you know, basically to show him what God is actually capable of. After a hundred years, despite this person being dead, his food is still good, and his donkey is still alive. Of course, this part gets confusing because it then talks about the bones of the donkey. Not because they're laying there lifeless, but talking about how the bones now have life and flesh and everything else built upon them. The donkey is alive. So the idea here is that God is in charge. God can do whatever he wants. He makes the rules. Things decay and renew as God sees fit. And that's a, that's a pretty good story. But what you may be wondering is, how did Ezra get caught up in all this? What is Ezra's role? Well, apparently there are some scholars and commentators who believe that the link to Ezra is completely without merit. <laughs> You know, so the reason you didn't see a connection is because there isn't one. And this is actually probably most of them who think this. Uh, further, I, I agree for the most part. You know, Ezra is linked to this passage more by imagination than anything else. You know, that and the theme that I mentioned at the beginning here, return and rebuild. That is the theme of Ezra, always. So it's not hard to you know, to imagine Ezra as this person in this story, tasked with the rebuilding of the temple and really of Judaism and saying to God, how is this possible? The theme here is resurrection. The passage I just read is sandwiched between references to Abraham uh, and Muhammad thought he was restoring the order of Abraham to Southern Arabia. Um, so just as Ezra was resurrecting and restoring Israel, you know, Muhammad was restoring Abraham. Of course, uh, in the case of Ezra, <laughs> this was with a big assist from the king of Persia. 
you know, and like with a Christian interpretation of Ezra and the Bible, you know, here the Quran is going beyond just a physical restoration of all of these things. You know, Muhammad is not just interested in establishing an earthly Islamic state. He is, but that's one thing. He's delivering also, at the same time, a parallel message, the news of bodily, earthly, spiritual, eternal resurrection. There is the community and there's the individual. Islam emphasizes both. Christianity too. You know, it, it also teaches bodily resurrection. And so does the story from Surah 2, verse 259. Now that is, of course, assuming the figure in the story is Ezra. And I know that's debatable, but just, you know, what if here? If the figure in that story is Ezra, historically speaking, it's almost a perfect bridge, bridge story, really, to Christianity and then to Islam. It's the planting of the seeds, the seeds of this idea of bodily resurrection and the afterlife. Happen, you know, and if it's Ezra, so it's happening just as the second temple was being rebuilt. So then historically, we start to have afterlife debates, you know, in real life among the Jews and then a Jew named Yeshua, uh, Jesus in Greek, he starts talking about the kingdom of God. And then Muhammad reinforces that idea. So much so that because of the dominance of the two largest religions, the afterlife is a dominant religious concept in our world. Here we have Ezra, if this is Ezra, and he is giving a preview of the things Muhammad would deal with in the pagan community so many years later. This is a good story to justify that idea that just seemed a bridge too far for so many pagans in the Arab world, at least. This idea that God can resurrect someone's bones, that he can resurrect anything, really. The Arab pagans just didn't believe this, which from our vantage point, it, it seems really, really strange. You know, you guys believe that a rock can magically bring you success, you know, that it can help turn the tide when things are low, that it can resurrect your fortune. And yet, if the creator of the universe wants to reverse death and decay, that's impossible. That's your line. However, that was the situation Muhammad found himself in. It was the Arab zeitgeist, if you will. But I think also the larger audience for that passage in uh, 2, 2.59 is all the people who don't fully understand God to be the complete and total master of the universe. God can do anything. God created physics, so he can change what is physically possible whenever he feels like it. So whether you think something is physically possible is completely irrelevant because you only know and follow the laws of the physical world. The person who made those rules can just as easily change them. You know, it's like, imagine we're, we're inside a game, and God is the programmer. He can tweak the code. We cannot. And that's what God does in the story of the person who was asleep for a hundred years. Now, who was that person? 
Maybe it's Ezra. Maybe it's not. But it's still a good story. The brief mentioned in 930, as I mentioned earlier, was almost certainly Ezra, at least I think, which gives him the novel honor of being the latest and the youngest of the Old Testament prophets to be mentioned in the Quran. But really, that's about it <laughs> that we can definitively say about Ezra and the Quran. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.